good to be back with you guys. We've been traveling a bit, um, seeing family, so I'm back. Um, we are back in Luke, too, so we've been a little bit of a break, but we're back where we left off, and we are going to hit the home stretch here. So it's going to line up real nicely um, right as we're getting to the Passion Week and the Crucifixion is when we'll be entering Easter, so um, we're diving, diving back in. Um, let me, uh, let me read the passage that we're going to be looking at today. Um, we're going to be in Luke chapter 18, verse 35 through 19, verses 10. Um, so grab your Bibles. Um, if you don't have one, there should be one under a seat somewhere within a maybe 10-foot radius. Um, or look on with a neighbor. So Luke chapter 18. Verse 35. As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd going by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. And he cried out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And those who were in front rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried out all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and commanded him to be brought to him. When he came near, he asked him, what do you want me to do for you? He said, Lord, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, recover your sight. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people when they saw it gave praise to God. He entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. And he was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone to be a guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you have not remained silent, but you've spoken to us. You've um, showed us your son through your word. God, that you've come down um, to be with us and to heal us and to rescue us. God, I ask that you would um, give me the words to speak um, as I preach this word, God, that you would um, give us all ears to hear it, that you would give us all hearts and minds to receive it, help us to put it into practice, help us to see you better and know ourselves better, and help us to learn to love our neighbor. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned, I just got back from traveling a little bit. We were gone for a couple weeks seeing family, and unfortunately we had to use airplanes to get there. Um, now on this last flight as I was coming back, flew through Salt Lake City, wintertime traveling, there's always some kind of delay, right? I had a short layover, and when I landed, I had about maybe 10, 15 minutes to get to my, other, my, uh, my layover gate, or the gate to the next plane I was taking. So, you know, I kind of tried the thing where I get up early and try to work towards the front, but you know, everybody gets up and everybody just likes to kind of just stand there, you know, it just makes them feel good because they were sitting the whole time. 
So I got a little bit up, but I'm still quite a ways back. So I'm waiting, waiting for us to you know, get to the gate and get out the plane. I get out the plane, and I know that it's going to be very tight. So I have options, right? I can um, go all out, or I can try to kind of be a little reserved and dignified. So I start off um, because you know I think too highly of myself. I start off with the kind of sort of the dignified fast walk. It's like you know you look like you don't look you're not don't look foolish. You just kind of look like you're important, you know. And oh, he's you know I got long you know I'm tallish, so I got long legs. And just kind of like a a nice quick stride. But as I'm walking, I realize if I keep this pace up, there's just no way I'm going to get to the gate on time. So um, I eventually did decide that. I had to run, and so I just start booking it through the through the terminal. And I don't know if it's because we were down um, we were down uh, uh, by uh, at sea level. I don't know if it's because uh, Salt Lake is higher up, and I've been at sea level. But I'm carrying you know carrying two heavy bags, and I'm running, and I'm exhausted. Um, it is not. I mean, I like I run just in my life, so I wouldn't have expected it to be that difficult. But I was exhausted. I'm huffing and puffing. I'm red. You know, I got in my coat on. Um, and I'm just running through the terminal. Um, I ran as fast as I could, holding two bags. And I, as I get there, you know, the sign says, final boarding call. And um, the flight attendant at the gate, she just kind of, I don't even think she looked at me, but she just was kind of looking down at her papers. And she said, you made it, Mr. Scott. And so then I was like, thank you. I got onto the plane just before they closed the gate. All right. But so in the end, um, even though I started off caring more about how random people in Salt Lake City thought of, of me, in the end I cared more about getting in my plane than anything else, right? More than what people thought about me. Um, I had to get out of my comfort zone. I pushed myself to run. I was exhausted. Um, I had to risk embarrassing myself to get to my plane on time so that I wasn't stuck in airport purgatory for who knows how long. So today, <clears throat> we're looking at two stories of these two men who were not afraid to embarrass themselves to get to Jesus, right? They're not worried about what the crowd thinks or um, the crowds that are in their way. Right? These stories, which are concluding Jesus' ministry of preaching and miracles in Israel, they give us a window um, through these two men and Jesus' interaction with them of really the heart of faith, the heart and message of the, the faith and repentance um, in response to the gospel. So, a little context first before we dive into these two stories, um, since it's been, you know, a month and a half or so since we've been in Luke. Um, but this is, this is the last in a series of events, um, including the parable of the Minas, which we're going to look at next week, before Jesus ends the journey that he started way back in Luke chapter 9, um, and he finally is going to enter Jerusalem. And together, these stories make up, uh, it's often called the Jericho narrative, since all these three passages take place either just outside of or just within Jericho. And there are reasons why Jericho is important at this stage in the gospel, and at this stage in Jesus' journey. Um, one is that um, a major theme of Jesus' life and his ministry is the reenactment of the story of Israel. Um, which the Gospels highlight that regularly. Um, Jesus, earlier at the Transfiguration, he'd referred to his death and resurrection as his exodus, or it might say in your Bible, his departure. Um, so Jesus, um, 
the Gospels are, are showing us that Jesus is a new and better Moses leading a new and better Exodus, right? And here especially, also showing that Jesus is a new and better Joshua leading a new and greater conquest. Um, the name Jesus, Yeshua, um, is just a slight variation on Joshua, Yehoshua, which uh, both of them meaning Yahweh saves. Um, take a look at this map. Um, I've got a visual aid and lasers. That's a dove. Okay, so this is a map of Jesus' final journey to Jerusalem that starts in Luke 9. Um, and so he, he starts up here in the Sea of Galilee, makes his way down. This is where um, the Samaritans reject him. They don't receive him. And so earlier in Jesus' ministry, when he went to Jerusalem, he just cut right through here. That's one of the main travel um, routes. Um, but it can be a little dangerous, especially with the tensions between Samaritans and Jews. And in this case, the Samaritans don't receive Jesus. So he says, okay, skirts around, crosses over the Jordan River, and then here crosses back over to get to Jericho and then eventually to Jerusalem. And that's the key thing here is that um, Jesus is going outside of the promised land and then very intentionally crossing over the Jordan, moving into Jericho, tracing this path of the conquest that Joshua had led Israel, Israel through all those years ago. Um, and Jesus, we'll see this uh, next week with the triumphal entry. Jesus' movements, the, the geographical locations he goes to, they're all very intentional um, in order to show people what he's up to and who he is. All right. Um, and that, that, that idea of going outside the promised land and then crossing into the promised land, that's, that's what's most important here to see in the route that Jesus is taking. Um, because Jesus, you know, as I just said, he's bringing a new conquest. He's defeating his people's enemies. He's providing life and rest and a home for his people. But he's doing it in a bit of a different way, perhaps a surprising way, from the way that Joshua did it. Right, Jericho was, if you remember, the city that was destroyed um, under Joshua for opposing God and, and opposing his people. Um, in the Gospels, um, what we see, though, is that Jericho is not condemned. Instead, we find faith um, in a blind beggar and in Zacchaeus. Um, and this shadow of Jericho, this, this example of God's judgment and salvation, is instead, as we'll see, going to fall surprisingly, tragically, on Jerusalem which has really become a kind of Jericho itself. So Jericho sets this tone for this great salvation that Jesus is going to accomplish. And it might also remind us of um, the faith of Rahab, uh, one of Jesus' own ancestors, a woman who, um, though she was an outsider, though she was an outcast, she had faith and she was given mercy. She was spared from the judgment of Jericho and brought into God's people. And these two stories of faith, uh, of the blind man and of Zacchaeus, it brings together a lot of these themes in Luke and a lot of other themes, especially ones that, um, that you see right in this uh, chapter 18 leading up to the stories that we're looking at today. Um, again, it's been a little while since we've been there, but um, we've seen the parable of the persistent widow who, who just doggedly is seeking justice in spite of initial resistance. We saw this contrast between the proud tax collector and, uh, or sorry, the proud uh, self-righteous Pharisee and the humble tax collector who asked God for mercy. We saw Jesus commending children as an example of the kind of faith that receives God's kingdom. And then just before this, we saw the story of the rich young ruler who came to Jesus looking to justify his life as being 
good enough to enter the kingdom. But he was unwilling to give up his idol and follow Jesus. So that's, that's everything that's leading up to um, these stories that we're going to look at today. So let's for, look first at the, this blind beggar. Um, look again in verse 35. It says, As he drew near to Jericho, a blind man was sitting by the roadside begging. And hearing a crowd go by, he inquired what this meant. They told him, Jesus of Nazareth is passing by. The Jesus of Nazareth, this should cue us to think of really Jesus' first sermon that he preached back in his hometown, Nazareth, um, at the very beginning of Luke. And in there he, he referenced and he read from and referenced Isaiah um, announcing the arrival of God's blessing and freedom that included, among other things, healing of the blind. And so probably this blind man, he had at this point heard um, of this man from Nazareth who, who promised to be healing the blind and who had been going around and working miracles. He's not clueless um, because of the way that he then responds in addressing Jesus. So he hears Jesus of Nazareth, and then the, the light goes on. And then in verse 38, he, he cries out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So son of David, he addresses Jesus as this Messiah, this coming king that Israel had been longing for and expecting for years and years and years. And this is, um, we're seeing in this story, one of these great ironies of the gospel, which is that it's a blind man who sees who Jesus really is because he has faith, he has spiritual sight. And at this point, um, thus far in the gospel, he's really one of the only ones who's gotten Jesus' identity and who's really openly spoken of his identity, other than perhaps Jesus' disciples, although they're also often really confused. Or obviously the demons always are the ones who are ironically also, they know exactly who Jesus is, they're saying who he is. But it's this blind man who declares clearly who Jesus is and Jesus' identity. Right? The man without physical sight is the one who's able to see the most important thing. Um, and I think sometimes we, we too go through difficulties, the loss of our faculties, the loss of our capacity, in order to develop faith. Right? How often do we rely on our own sight, um, but we're blind to the truth that we most need to know? Right? Maybe if you're struggling or, or you're going through some loss or difficulty, um, would you develop the capacity to first ask God, what do you want me to see right now? Ask for healing, too. The blind man asks for healing. But it's often in those moments of loss, those moments of difficulty, of suffering, that God opens our eyes to see things that we had been blind to previously. So this blind man, he's the only one who sees Jesus truly. He cries out. Interestingly, he doesn't cry out for healing at first, but he cries out for mercy. Um, the crowd rebukes him. He's, a, he's an outsider. He's an outcast. He's one probably, um, on their view, on the crowd's view, they probably think that he's blind and poor because of something he did wrong or because of something his parents did wrong, right? If, if you've read John's gospel, the Pharisees um, bring this blind man um, and, and ask, or this blind man gets healed and then the Pharisees are asking, did this guy do something wrong or did his parents do something wrong that he was born blind? Um, so the crowd tells him to be quiet. All right, don't bother the king. He's too important to deal with a sinner like you. You, you deserve it. Like, your, your time is gone, right? But just like the parable of the persistent widow, he doesn't give up, right? He insists, um, and he, he cries out again. Um, and he cries out and says, all the more, son of David, have mercy on me. And then Jesus stops and commands him to be brought to him. 
right? This echoes, again, this, the tax collector that we just saw in the Pharisee and the tax collector. Um, in humility, he, he just looks down and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Right? And the, the blind man, too, calls out to Jesus for mercy. So Jesus stops. Um, interestingly, and I'm, I'm not actually sure what to make of this, something for you to maybe think about, only after the second request from the blind man. Um, and then he summons him to him. And what Jesus says is really interesting. In verse 41, Jesus asks, what do you want me to do for you? So this blind beggar comes to him, asking for mercy, and Jesus says, what do you want? So surely Jesus knows that he wants to see, right? Um, He's heard him ask for mercy. This isn't the only time that Jesus um, asked this question, though. He asked different people throughout his ministry, um, when they come to him, he says, what do you want? What are you actually asking for? What do you really want? What do you want me to do for you? No, really, what, what do you really want? It's a great question. And it's not, that, it's not that Jesus is reluctant to heal, right? He's not sort of just like the crowds, kind of keeping him at arm's distance. Um, he's asking a question that's really going to reveal the heart of the blind man and give him this opportunity to publicly demonstrate his faith that will lead to people praising God when they see the miracle. But sometimes that question, what do you want, um, it exposes our desires. And once we really examine them, once we really voice them, we kind of see them a little clearer, right? Maybe, maybe they were a little out of order, um, right? Maybe, maybe we're not quite asking for, not quite wanting what we really should, right? Sometimes it, asking that question of ourselves just gives us the opportunity to be honest with God um, about what we do really want, right? We don't need to hide our desires. We don't need to assume that God doesn't care about what we care about. Um, in any case, asking ourselves that question, just like Jesus does to the blind man and to others, is a great way to put things into perspective. Um, I, I remember going through a couple years ago, a season where I was just, I just felt like God was distant. It was a, it was a dry season. Um, and I remember just pretty earnestly seeking God and saying, you know, God, I want, like, can you just do something like crazy? Like, can you just show me something amazing? Um, do something like wild and out of the ordinary? And I really, you know, you know, to the best of my knowledge, knowing my own heart, I really earnestly wanted that for, I thought, good reasons. Um, and just in struggling with prayer with God, um, he didn't do that for me. Um, and I remember having this distinct sense of this question, what did I really want? What did I really want to happen there? And what was really, what was really going to help me? Um, and coming out of that time of, of wrestling with that, wrestling with doubt, wrestling with dryness, I realized that what I really wanted is for in my life to know that God is with me and walking through all of these different things that I'm dealing with, with me. Um, I didn't really want something crazy to happen and then go right back to the way things were, right? You know, I didn't, I didn't really want a crazy miracle and then return to normal, right? I wanted to develop my faith. I wanted to develop um, my ability to see God as with me like he promised. Um, not to say that he isn't going to do crazy things for you guys or that he hasn't, but for me, um, that period exposed my desires and helped me to develop a deeper understanding of really what it means to, for, meant for me to walk with God. Right? Even though I didn't get what I thought that I wanted at first. So maybe spend time this week asking that question. 
the question that Jesus asked the blind man. What do I really want? Right? What are my desires? Are those desires good? Do they line up with what I really need, what, what really God wants for me, with what's best for me? So the blind man responds to this question with a new title, which demonstrates the kind of completion of this full reality of his faith that, he, faith that he's showing us. He says, Lord, let me see again. Lord, the one who has authority, the one who I owe my allegiance to, my life to, the King, Yahweh, God in the flesh, heal me. Jesus sees this humble faith and he heals him. Look in verse 42. Jesus said to him, recover your sight, your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him, glorifying God and all the people when they saw, when they saw it gave praise to God. So the blind man who saw what no one else could see now sees what everyone else can. And this is the, this is the heart of faith, right, of the gospel. It's simply a humble cry to the creator of the eye himself, have mercy on me, let me see. His faith, his confidence, his trust in Jesus was the condition for Jesus drawing near to save and to restore. Do you have that faith? Do we have the faith that is, um, in some ways, in a challenging way for us, the necessary condition for us to see the work of God in our church, in our community? We then move um, from this story, we move into the city of Jericho. And we're told the story of another man who is seeking to see Jesus and doing whatever it takes to overcome the obstacles to that. So look at chapter 19, verse 1. He enters Jericho and is passing through. And there was a man called, named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. So in this case, we have, at least from a human perspective, someone who's almost the exact opposite of the blind beggar, Right? A rich, powerful, corrupt man. The words of Jesus after he uh, speaks to the rich young ruler and the rich young ruler walks away sad should come, come to mind. Um, how difficult it is for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. And yet, Jesus had ended that story with this. What is impossible with men is possible with God. So Zacchaeus is a tax collector. Tax collectors, if you can believe it, were viewed even worse then than they are today. Uh, we're entering into tax season here soon, so all of our you know, dormant hatreds from last April are about to get stirred up again. Um, so Zacchaeus is a Jew, but as a tax collector, he's employed by the Roman Empire um, to basically extort money from his own people for the sake of the occupying government. And nobody likes the Roman Empire. That's kind of this big dramatic question behind Jesus' whole ministry is, is, is he going to actually get rid of these Romans for us? Is he going to bring his army? If he's really the Messiah, is he going to get rid of this oppressive regime? All right. So Zacchaeus is on their side. And he's not also just any tax collector. Uh, we're told he's the chief tax collector. So he would have had other tax collectors working under him, and they would give him a cut of their profits. So he's at the top of this kind of pyramid scheme of taxation, uh, maximizing his own profits at the expense of his own people for the gain and for the wealth of Caesar, right? So basically, he's a greedy traitor, right? Nobody likes him. Nobody feels sorry for him not being liked by anybody. Um, over this Christmas break, we watched uh, the uh, 
cartoon Robin Hood, the Disney cartoon Robin Hood, you know, with the fox and everything. And if you remember, the, uh, the sheriff of Nottingham is this like kind of like fat wolf guy who walks around stealing everybody's money. Um, he's collecting all the taxes. He goes to the, the little rabbit children's birthday party and he takes the kids um, one gold coin that was kind of his birthday present, goes to the, guy, the crippled guy and he like shakes all the money out of his like casted leg. Um, and so you just, he just, you know, this is this sleazy guy who's out there stealing from the poor um, every little bit that they have, even though, you know, the king doesn't even need it. Um, that's, the kind of, that's the kind of guy that Zacchaeus was, right? Um, modern examples, I don't know, insurance claim, adjusters, processors, airline customer service, um, whoever invented the idea that when you die, you have to get taxed from the stuff before you give it to your children. Like, just, I'm sure you can think of your own favorite example, but these, those are kind of the spiritual heirs of these first century tax collectors. All right, all right so you all feel, you feel hatred for Zacchaeus now, right? That's important for you to understand how the, the turn in this story. So this tax collector, he does something very interesting. Look at verse three. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd could not because he was small of stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. Zacchaeus wants to see Jesus. Right? And once again, the crowd is an obstacle, in this case, literally preventing him from seeing Jesus because he's short and there's a big crowd. Um, so he climbs up a sycamore tree. And this is a sycamore fig tree. I did not know this. I was, as I was studying it, I realized this is a sycamore fig tree. Um, it's the same kind of tree that is referred to when you see um, in, in the Gospels a fig tree or a mulberry tree in English. Um, and these trees can get huge under the right conditions. They can be up to 60 feet tall. Um, so this, is not, this would not be typical behavior for a rich and powerful man, right? Even same today. Like Dignified government officials don't scramble up sycamore trees, right? But Zacchaeus, like the blind beggar, he knows Jesus is passing by. And he's willing to do whatever it takes just to see him, just to get a glimpse of this Jesus that he's heard about. What this is, is this is childlike faith, right? A faith that it transforms this kind of broken, corrupted, small man, reduced by years of moral compromise and selfish ambition, into really an eager young boy who kicks off his shoes and just starts climbing up a tree to see Jesus. Right, he's receiving the kingdom like a child. So Jesus looks up at him, he's probably slightly amused, and he says, you're having me over for dinner. Now, especially in the culture at that time, that would have been a radical act for Jesus. Eating with someone, um, accepting their hospitality, that sent a strong social message that, um, that was uh, of connection with that person and even potentially approval of and participation in that person's behavior and in their lifestyle. You see this echoed in um, John's second letter, Second John, when he, he tells the church to watch out for any false teacher, and he writes, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. So this was a big deal, right? And you see people start grumbling. You know, he's, he's breaking bread with that guy? He's a tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. That guy just like stole from me yesterday, right? That's what people are, that's what people are thinking. But Jesus is willing to take on the shame, take the social consequences of seeking out Zacchaeus. 
entering his house is a huge act of grace. Because it says to Zacchaeus, I'm willing to be seen with you. I'm willing to accept the consequences of your sins. I'll be labeled and I'll be judged for your sake. Are you afraid to, to welcome Jesus? Are you afraid to maybe even talk to God? Nervous about what he thinks about you? You know, ashamed of what you've done? Jesus wants to be seen with you. He wants to be with you, no matter what you've done. He came for the sick, not the healthy. He came for the lost. He eats lunch at the table with all the losers and the misfits. That's the one he chooses. The one who cries out to him for mercy, the one who strains to see him over the crowd, those are the ones that Jesus goes right to. And this is not because outcasts necessarily have kind of intrinsic virtue or, or righteousness just because of the fact that they're on the social margins. Right? The problem with the grumbling people in this story was not that they took issues with tax collectors or their lifestyle. It was terrible. It was evil. But the problem was they refused to accept them and forgive them. They refused to be associated with them because of what they'd done. Because of their past, they said, I don't care what you're saying today or what you're doing today. I don't want anything to do with you. But all Jesus looks for in both of these stories is faith. Faith that would reach out to him in the hope that just maybe God is more forgiving than these crowds. And he is. Jesus extends grace, and immediately that grace transforms Zacchaeus. Right? At the grumbling of the people, Zacchaeus shows that he isn't expecting some kind of divine stamp of approval on his corrupt life, like the rich young ruler wanted. He has faith, and that faith leads him to change his life. He addresses Jesus as Lord, and he promises to give half of his wealth to the poor and to use the other half to right all the wrongs that he committed in all of his corrupt taxation schemes. So Zacchaeus is accepted by Jesus regardless of his sinful past, but he doesn't stay the way that he was. His his old god, his old master, money, is dethroned, and there is a new king. So Jesus responds in verse 9. Jesus says, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. Right behind this definition, um, really, some people would say this is kind of the, the theme statement of Luke and of the gospel. Um, behind this is, is a really interesting passage in Ezekiel 34. Um, I have it in your notes if you want to look at the whole thing later. Um, But that's echoed at many points in the Gospel of Luke, especially in his parable of the lost sheep. And in that prophecy, God says this. I'll just read a snippet from that chapter. He says, um, through Ezekiel the prophet, Behold, I, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. I will seek the lost. I will bring back the strayed. I will bind up the injured. I will strengthen the weak. Is that you? Is that maybe how you feel? This is God making a promise that he, he himself, will bring you in and will take care of you. Zacchaeus is one of these lost sheep of Israel. And he's a son of Abraham, Jesus says, and not just by physical descent, although he is that, but by the faith that makes anyone a part of Abraham's family. 
it's easy for us today to have compassion on the blind beggar. Then it's a little bit harder to have compassion on Zacchaeus. Right? He, doesn't, he doesn't quite fit into our modern categories of those who deserve grace. Um, you know, we can maybe have some pride in seeing ourselves as compassionate people um, on those who don't deserve it. But we, if we're honest, we all have our own little lists of those who we really don't think deserve it, right? who don't deserve charity, who don't deserve love. Right? The rich guy with his yacht who donates, who donates to politicians I don't like. Jesus is eating with him. So ask yourself, um, who to you is beyond compassion? Who do you hesitate to love? Who has to kind of meet your list of demands before you show them hospitality and welcome? Jesus comes for the rich and for the poor, for Jew and for Gentile, high and low. What marks his people out um, it runs counter to any society or culture's kind of caste system or system of deserving and undeserving. It's simply anyone who cries out to him for mercy and who just wants to see him. So both of these stories show us that we desperately need to see Jesus. It's the greatest call on our lives to seek him and to see him. What are you willing to do to see him? What are you unwilling to do to see him? And not just know about him or kind of curiously listen to him, give him you know, a day a week or a couple hours a week, right? Not just give him a chance, but to really see him, to see him as he really is. And we can't see him without faith, without the gift of faith. We're blinded by so many things. Um, is it your wealth, maybe? Or maybe your fear of poverty? Knowing that following Jesus, it might cost everything that you have. It might involve the kind of death that has to happen before you can be born again. But do you turn from Jesus in the face of this, these possibilities, with your head down, sad because of your great riches? Or maybe do you have a crutch um, or a comfort that's helped you get by, that you fear or hesitate to give up in exchange for God's comfort? Or maybe you're proud and you think, um, you don't think you're all that bad. Um, you're not prepared to embarrass yourself by crying out to Jesus repeatedly, have mercy on me. Right? Are you too old and too dignified, to, too important to maybe climb a tree? Um, we're unaware that really all of us are short little people who need to dirty up our clothes and scrape our knees um, to see Jesus. So I'll end by returning to the question that Jesus asked the beggar. What do you want? What do you want Jesus to do for you? Do you want him to validate your life choices, to solve your problems but at a discount? Or do you want to see? Will you go to him in humility, asking him for mercy? Will you go out of your way, beneath your status, beneath your self-image, to see him today? Right? Are you willing to run through the airport to see him? Right? He wants to eat at your house. He wants to be seen with you. But will you receive him, and will you be found? Let's pray. God, I ask that you would give us sight, that you would give us humility to seek you and find that you've been seeking us. God, I pray that you would give each of us um, 
as we begin this new year, a new vision for who you are and what you're up to in our lives. God, I pray that you would have mercy on each of us and you would give us the humility to reach out to you for that mercy. And I ask that by the power of your spirit, you would enable us to recognize that we have received great mercy in order to show that and give that to others. Lord, show us who in our lives we need to welcome in, that we need to give undeserved grace and welcome to. God, I ask that we would, we would just be gripped by this message of humble, seeking mercy to see you. Give us vision this year. In Jesus' name, amen.